Podcastle, episode 123, for September 21st, 2010. Black Feather by K. Tempest Bradford, rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Black Feather by K. Tempest Bradford. The story originally appeared in Interfictions, a print anthology showcase for interstitial fiction. What is interstitial fiction, you might ask? The definition on the website of the Interstitial Arts Foundation, which is the organization that put out the anthology, by the way, is that it is art made in the interstices between genres and categories, art that flourishes in the borderlands between different disciplines, mediums, and cultures, art that crosses borders made by artists who refuse to be constrained by category labels. Ravens play a large part in today's story, and I can't imagine a more interstitial animal. Like interstitial art, they flourish in the borderlands. Curious, adaptable, aggressive, and omnivorous, they don't surrender to the challenges in their environment, they overcome them. Widely regarded as one of the smartest of all birds, they are uncanny mimics and able problem solvers. But I think it's their incredible level of social and emotional intelligence that captivates us the most. Both ravens and crows will come to recognize individual human beings and even call them by name, that is, a vocalization they use in no other situation. They have also been observed to kill others of their own species for no discernible reason. Perhaps it is because we recognize so much of our own behavior in them that we humans have always both respected and been wary of these strange, beautiful birds. Here in the Pacific Northwest, the raven has a particularly storied reputation among Native American tribes. It is said that he created the world by dropping a stone from his beak and that he brought light to humanity by stealing it from his misanthropic grandfather, Gray Eagle. In other mythologies, though, the raven's sly intelligence is viewed as far more ominous. In parts of Europe, ravens are considered to harbor the ghosts of murdered people or the souls of the damned. So which are they? Noble, enlightened tricksters or dark, demonic messengers from the other side? You'll just have to draw your own conclusions after listening to today's story. Author K. Tempest Bradford is a speculative short story writer by day, an activist blogger by night, and a gadget nerd in the interstices. She attended Clarion West in 2003 and currently belongs to two New York City-based fiction writing groups, Altered Fluid and The Black Beans. Her fiction has appeared in Abus and Apex, Farthing Magazine, Strange Horizons, Sybil's Garage, Electric Velocipede, and the Federations and Interfictions Anthologies. She contributes blog posts, essays, columns, and features to Tor.com, the Carl Brandon Society blog, the Feminist SF blog, and the Angry Black Woman. The nexus of all her activities is her website at ktempestbradford.com. The story is read by Emal El Motar, a first-generation Lebanese-Canadian currently pursuing a Ph.D. in English literature at the Cornwall campus of the University of Exeter. She lives in an old library built of dismantled ships where, in her hours of rest, she drinks tea, plays the harp, and writes love letters to Damascus. Her short fiction and poetry have appeared in a range of publications, including Strange Horizons, Shimmer, Cabinet des Fees, Sybil's Garage, Mythic Delirium, and Idiomancer. She is the winner of the 2009 Riesling Award for Best Short Poem, and is in her first year of eligibility for the J.W. Campbell Award. 
She co-edits Goblin Fruit, an online quarterly dedicated to fantastical poetry with the nefarious Jessica P. Wick and keeps a live journal under the name Tithani, uh, and that's spelled T-I-T-H-E-N-A-I dot livejournal.com. Her book, The Honey Month, a collection of spontaneous short fiction and poetry inspired by the taste of 35 different flavors of honey, is available from Papaveria Press. Enjoy the story. Black Feather by K. Tempest Bradford Exactly one year before she saw the raven, Brenna began to dream of flying. Sometimes she was in a plane, Sometimes she was in a bird. Sometimes she was just herself, surrounded by sky, clouds, and too thin to breathe air. In the dark, in the light, over cities and oceans and fields, she flew every night for a year. Then, on the twelfth day of the twelfth month, the dreams changed. They ended with a crash and fire, and the feeling of falling. Most nights, she almost didn't wake up in time. Exactly one year from the night the dreams began, Brenna struggled out of sleep, the phantom smell of burning metal still in her nose. She reached out for Scott. He was not there. He was never there. He had never been there. She fell back onto her pillows and groaned. Another dream of flying, another reaching out for Scott. She wished she could stop doing both. Brenna lived in Manhattan, a small, insignificant corner of it, way at the very tip-top. On an island of concrete and glass and steel, she had found the one place still mostly untouched. It had a lake and a forest and a hill she could climb without ever realizing how high she was at the top. From there, everything seemed far away, not far down. Not like when you're in a building, or falling from the sky. She had lived by this park, this forest, for two months now. The apartment, her new apartment, was paid up for the summer, a graduation gift from her mother. That morning, while the sky was still pink and yellow, She went out and up the hill to the small meadow at the very top. She thought of it as her place. It was there, in that meadow, amongst the crumbling remains of benches and street lamps long abandoned to the regrowing wilderness, that Brenna first met the raven. She was meditating under a large oak tree when she heard a raven's cry. The sound didn't register at first, and might not have ever, if it hadn't been so persistent. The constant cawing didn't stop until she opened her eyes. There, on the fallen tree trunk in front of her, stood a black raven. It had been a long time since she'd seen one, not since England, when she put aside her fear of flying to follow Scott across an ocean. A year ago. Did you follow me, she joked. The raven looked right at her and cawed. It came back to her then, A rush of emotion and memory, half hidden, half forgotten. A warm day by the sea, looking back over the ocean toward New York. A raven standing out on the rocks, her plea to him. 
I want to fly. I want to fly and be free and go wherever and whenever. I want to fly. She wanted it so badly that she felt her heart would break. The feeling had overwhelmed her then, and it overwhelmed her now. Here in the forest, an ocean between her and England, and she could still feel it. She found that she was crying. The raven's call echoed in her mind, but when she wiped the tears away, he was gone without a sound. Or had there been wings flapping? She turned to pick up her bag and saw a feather, long and shiny and black, lying on the rock by her side. Brenda showed the feather to a friend, the psychic one. Feathers are powerful messages and special gifts, she said while shuffling a tarot deck. Draw a card. Brenda drew the hanged man. Sacrifice. But of what? The next day, Brenda saw the raven again. He was staring at her through the bedroom window, the one with the view of the hill. She thought he was the only one, but soon there were two, then three. One day she saw them all. Twelve ravens high up in the oak tree, watching over her. She showed the feather to another friend, the non-psychic one. Crow's feather, you mean, she said. It is? How can you tell? Brenda asked. Because we don't have ravens in New York. We have crows. They called to her in her dreams. She heard them, but couldn't find them. Their feathers littered the floor long and shiny and black. She dreamed of flying through a forest of black trees and shiny ebony leaves, always following the raven's song. She had six nights of this, six nights of searching and never finding, six nights of waking up sweaty with raven feathers in her hair. On the seventh night, the dream changed again. She found herself in a little wooden cabin fire crackling in the hearth, twelve small beds along the wall. She stood in the middle, wearing nothing but a man's white shirt. The ravens called to her from outside, but she did not want to go. One by one they flew in through the open door, and in a moment, a blink, an instant, they were not ravens, but young men. The youngest of all looked a lot like her. Who are you? she asked. We are your brothers, one said. We died for you, said another. The dream ended. Brenna ran into Scott, accidentally on purpose, taking a cigarette break in front of the building where he taught his summer course. The only thing she regretted about graduating was not being able to take his classes anymore. So you're living in wood now? he asked as they walked toward his office. Yeah, right by the hill. There are some interesting cave formations up there. Do you want to come explore them with me? Sure, that'd be cool. Okay, meet you by the baseball diamond at noon tomorrow. He flicked his cigarette away and went back inside. Brenna sighed. Twenty-four hours, yeah. I'll survive. On the eighth night... She dreamed again. The cabin again. This time the young men were already there. We're hungry, one said. So she cooked them dinner. 
they were each careful not to stain their white shirts. The dream ended. Scott took her up the hill to where the village Shirakopkok used to be at the base of a cliff. Black rocks piled on one another, embedded in the soil, rising up and up and up, farther than Brenna was willing to look. See up there? Scott pointed. The opening? It leads to a cave. Let's see if we can get in. Scott hopped up on a boulder and started climbing like it was the easiest thing in the world. Brenna forgot that, though his hair was completely white, Scott was only in his forties. He played the old wise man, but didn't move like one. She was torn. Should she go up? Risk being that high? If she slipped, she had no wings to spread, to catch the air, to glide higher. If she slipped and stumbled and fell, she would die. She just knew it. Don't worry, he said. I won't let you fall. She carefully made her way to him, then went ahead, glancing back to make sure he was close. He talked while they climbed. This was an Algonquin village. You can still see some of their markings on the rocks. She focused on climbing, taking her time, finding the footholds, the handholds, the way up. You're part Native American, aren't you? he asked. Yeah, on my father's side. She did not look down. She did not look up. She only climbed. And on your mother's? Black and Irish. They reached the shelf he'd pointed out. Brenda timidly peeked over the edge and down to the bottom. Though she'd always been afraid of heights, she loved high places. She'd discovered this two summers before while rock climbing in Arizona. She'd been trying to impress a guy then, too. Did they really live in these caves? she asked. The opening seemed awfully small to her. No, they were used for different purposes. Scott pulled an aluminum flashlight from his pocket. Initiation rituals. Remember the Glastonbury Druids I told you about in the England class? The Chalice Well and the caves under the Tor? Same concept here. Just a different place, different time. He crawled in, obviously expecting her to follow. Brenna poked her head into the opening. Still dark, even with the faint glow of flashlight ahead. The cave, not much wider than she was, felt oppressive and smelled foreboding. Scott's voice bounced back to her. You really should see this, it's amazing. She made some inarticulate reply, but could barely breathe. The walls were pressing against her. The darkness was pushing her out. The flapping of wings, the call of ravens. Panicked, she scrambled backwards, catching herself just before falling off the shelf. A while later, Scott slid out, head first, and smiled reassuringly at her. No initiation for you today, huh? She smiled back. I guess I'm just not ready. Later, in her apartment... Brenna showed the feather to Scott. It's not from a crow, he said. It's not? No, not a feather that big. That's definitely from a raven. She stared at it. They're rarer than crows in New York, but not unheard of. He stared at her. She invited him to stay longer. 
he declined. On the ninth night, she dreamed again. The cabin, again. The young men were asleep. She went outside into the forest, but there was nothing to see. In the garden behind the cabin, twelve lilies grew. She picked one for each brother. The sound of wings. She looked up. They were ravens again, flying away. The dream ended. It's a symbol. You have to find the meaning, her psychic friend said. It's nothing. You're overtired, her non-psychic friend said. Ravens are messengers from the other world. Someone there wants your attention, her psychic friend said. You probably ate too many tacos before bed, her non-psychic friend said. Past life regression. Brenda's psychiatrist spoke with authority. It sounded like something her psychic friend would suggest. I assure you, I am serious, he said to the look on her face. I've done them before, and they've helped my patients every time. She said she would try anything once, and if it didn't work, at least she'd get some sleep. She lay on the couch, listening to his words. She went back and back and back, back along her life's path, growing younger with each breath, back through high school, middle school, her first kiss, her first pitch, her first word, until she came to a place, comfortable, warm, familiar, red, the place just before birth, her mother's womb. Her arms wrapped around another, protecting him. She knows that she must hold on tight and never let go. She cannot lose him, but she is going back and back and back, and his eyes open and his heart beats along with hers, and he looks at her, I am your brother. I died for you, then the sound of wings. She did not know when she began to scream, but she knew it took a long time for her to stop. As a child, Brenna had desperately wanted a brother. She would try to adopt the neighborhood boys into her family. She would try to walk away with babies at the mall. Other girls her age had crushes and pretend boyfriends. Brenna had pretend big brothers. When she was nine, Brenna's mother told her that she was a twin. She had had a brother in the womb with her, and on the ultrasound pictures she seemed to be hugging him. But in the eighth month, only one of their hearts was beating. They were delivered by emergency C-section. Brenna held on to her brother until the end. He was born first, though born dead. Her parents had named him Benjamin, when she was twelve, her mother finally took her to see his grave. Beloved son and brother. After that, the thought of a brother only made Brenna incredibly sad. She no longer wished for one. She pushed it out of her mind and forgot about it entirely. Until now. She was reluctant to go to Scott. Lately he'd been more standoffish than usual. Brenna had hoped that once she was no longer his student, he'd be more affectionate. On the contrary, he'd been more reticent than usual since they went to the park. But she was desperate. The shrink didn't know what he was doing, Scott said. And you do? She replied. Yes. She believed him. Don't worry, he said. I won't let you fall. 
Again she went back and back and back, this time one hand in the physical world, safely tucked in Scott's, his voice guiding her along the path of her life. She watched her life roll back like a movie on rewind, and when she came to the womb she was inside looking in, apart from the two small, not yet people holding on to each other. The one that was not her opened his eyes. I am your brother. I love you. Then the sound of wings. Brenna flew through the air, faster and faster and faster, flew back through her lives, each one freezing at one moment, a picture in her soul. She flew through them all until she came to the last one, the first one, and she could fly no more. She is just a baby. They carry her out into the courtyard while they watch. Each son is led to the block, the oldest first, to have his head chopped off. And as the oldest falls, the next one becomes the oldest. Then he falls. Then another. Then another. Until the twelfth son, the youngest, who is now the eldest, is led to the block. He looks at her, his baby sister. I love you. I died for you. And he falls too. She cries and cries. Her mother coos and cuddles. But there is no end to her crying. She cries for them, her mother says. She could not possibly understand, her father says. She understands. That night, Brenna didn't want to dream, didn't want to sleep. She lay in bed watching the constellations roll across the sky like hieroglyphs and just as undecipherable. She looked over the pictures in her mind, the lives frozen. There had been twelve, including this one, but not including the first. In each she saw a brother. In each he died. Brenda took the feather, her gift from the raven, and placed it beside her pillow. Her eyes drooped, then closed. She slipped into sleep, then into dreams. She is flying, back and back and back through her lives, frozen in place until she comes to the first one and she can fly no more. So she speaks instead. Why are there twelve white shirts in the wash, mother? She asks the queen. Because they are not clean, daughter, the queen answers with sadness. She has always been sad, even when she is happy. What soils them, mother? Blood. The dream ended. The next night she flew back again. She is in a garden. Why does this plot have twelve lilies and nothing else, mother? Because nothing else will grow there, daughter. Why is that? Because that is where your brothers are buried. The dream ended. The next night she flew back again. Why are all my brothers dead, mother? Your father had them killed, daughter. Why did he do that? So you could have all the wealth and kingdom for yourself. Brenna asked Scott, Are they dreams or are they memories? What's the difference? was his enigmatic reply. She was starting to get frustrated. Try asking your dream what it wants you to understand. That was a thought. 
That afternoon, Brenna lay in bed, too afraid to sleep, too depressed to rise. So you could have all the wealth and kingdom for yourself, the queen had said. How senseless! A raven stared through her bedroom window. She mouthed to him, I'm sorry. That night, she reluctantly slept again, dreamed again. This time she did not pick a destination, but still ended up flying back and back and back until she could fly no more. She was running away and into the woods. She had to stop herself, stop and think and ask, ask what? You're a very inquisitive child, aren't you? A voice from above. She looked up. From a tree hung a man with long white hair bound in a ponytail. He hung from one foot upside down. He didn't seem at all affected by it. Go ahead, ask me something. I know almost everything now. Why? Is the sky blue? Do fools fall in love? Do birds suddenly appear? You'll have to be more specific, my dear. She was supposed to ask him about... about... how... Yes. How can I bring my brothers back? Ah, now that is the question of the day, is it not? I could tell you. Please tell me. Oh, there are so many ways, the hanging man said. You could sit in this tree and not speak a word for seven years. Maybe a handsome king would come by and make you his bride, hmm? Or you could sew twelve brother-sized shirts. Or you could convince the stars to give you their key to the glass mountain. You could do all of that, and more. In fact... You already have. When? Before. Before? In another time. In another world. In a fairy tale. In a myth. In the stories your mother would tell. Once upon a time there was a princess. For a long time she didn't know that she had brothers. One day she overheard people talking... She was the one who had caused their misfortune. When night came, she ran away and into the forest. I'm looking for my brothers. She went to the stars. I'll keep walking as far as the sky is blue to find them. They were kind and gave their key to the glass mountain. The way is hard. You won't be able to free us. You'd have to remain silent for seven years. Neither speak nor laugh. You'd have to sew twelve little shirts. The conditions are too hard. If you utter just a single word, if the key is lost, you cannot enter the glass mountain. Everything will be in vain. All your work would be for naught. The fragments danced in the corner of her mind's eye. But were they real memories or the memories of dreams? What's the difference? The hanging man asked. The flapping of wings. Twelve ravens perched in the tree, looking at Brenda, watching over her. You say you want your brothers back? Here they are. They're birds, she said. They're ravens. Why? Because they're dead. The ravens began to call out to her, calling and calling and calling. Brenda covered her ears and closed her eyes and willed herself awake struggled up and up and up out of sleep. But the calling continued outside her bedroom window. Twelve ravens on the fire escape, calling to her. Fly with us! Fly! 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 I can't! Brenna yelled through the window. I can't! It's too high! You're afraid, one said. Then the others. You're afraid! You're afraid! You're afraid! Afraid to die! 
The phone rang and she jerked awake. The room was silent. She looked out the window. Nothing there but the night. The phone rang again and she quickly picked it up. What? she barked. A short silence. I'm sorry I woke you. I thought you'd appreciate it. Scott. How... How did you know? She wasn't sure if she wanted the answer. Another silence. What are you afraid of, Brenna? Truly afraid of? She swallowed. On the other side of the window, it was just becoming morning. The dark outline of the hill with the dark outline of the apartments with the dark outline of the bridge against the less dark of the sky. Falling she finally said. Flying is nothing more than controlled falling. There was a long silence. Come find me later. We'll talk, he said, then hung up. Brenna couldn't fall back to sleep. There was no sleep left in her, even in the cool light of dawn. She slipped out of bed and got dressed in the semi-darkness. She went out the door, down the street, and into the forest. Halfway up the hill, she came upon a little wooden cabin. It had never been there before. She went inside. On the table was a white shirt. She took it up and began to sew. There are many certainties in this world, Brenna, the hanging man said. He hung from nowhere, his head beside hers. His breath smelled of smoke. One of them is that you always completed the tasks that I gave you, without fail, no matter how hard or how many. She could only regard him with a questioning gaze. She could not, must not speak. This she knew. So what do you want now? Another twelve lives? Another twelve tries? She finished the sleeve. The shirt was complete. The dream ended. Brenda woke up in her bed. It was noon. It was a dream. She slipped out of bed and got dressed in the midday sun. She went out the door, down the street, and into the forest. She headed to her place, her favorite tree. She pulled herself up into the branches, stepped out onto a limb, and looked down. She was surrounded by fire. She screamed. There are many certainties in this world, Brenna, the hanging man said. His white ponytail hung low, almost touching the flames. He didn't seem affected by it. One of them is that your brothers will never let you die. The flames shot higher. They will always choose to die for you. Why? Because they love you. Because you are not ready. But I'm the reason they die! No, you're the reason they live. Raven circled the tree, beating away flames with their wings. You completed the task a long time ago, so I granted your wish. Each brother lived a life equal to the one he would have had if not for you. Even Benjamin? Even Benjamin. And if I wish again? You will get the same. No more, no less. The tips of their wings ignited. Black feathers scorched blacker. 
The ravens flapped fire, succumbing to the flames one by one. No! Death is inevitable, whether you fear it or face it bravely. The fire nearly consumed her. The dream ended. Brenda woke up in her bed. It was almost evening. It was... A raven stared at her through the window. A white shirt hung from the doorknob. She slipped out of bed and pulled the shirt from the knob, held it close to her as sunlight seeped slowly from the sky. Okay, she said to herself, then to the raven. Okay. She put on the shirt, then took the feather from her bedside and put it in her hair. She went out the door, down the street, into the forest, up to the cliff, the glass mountain. She began to climb, taking her time, finding the footholds, the handholds, the way up. Higher and higher, the sun began to set. Higher and higher, the air began to mist. Higher and higher. She did not look down. She did not look up. She only climbed. She reached the shelf, the mouth of the cave, took a deep breath, and crawled inside, deep into the darkness. The walls pressing in on her from every side, the darkness drawing her in, driving her forward, welcoming her to the end, the peak of the glass mountain. Her brothers were there, waiting for her in their white shirts. She ran to them, held them tight, and danced with each in turn. Then, one by one, they took off their shirts, the shirts she had sewn, and became ravens again, flying in circles, calling to her. Flying is nothing more than controlled falling. She stepped to the edge of the mountain, faced the setting sun, and nodded. Yes. Yes, I'm ready. She fell forward from the edge, fell into the air. Her white shirt came apart at the seams, falling away from her as she turned, arms spread, wings spread, black, shiny fingers, feathers catching the wind, lifting her up and up as she joined the ravens, her brothers in the sky, flying into the sun, into the west, flying home. And welcome back. When I think of ravens in literature, among other things, I think of birds who represent the gateway to death. Sure, I blame Poe. I don't usually think of them as creatures symbolic of rebirth. That's phoenix territory, or at least that's my knee-jerk reaction. Although, that's something of a false dichotomy, isn't it? For many people, death and rebirth are just different stages of the journey, so why not ravens? Before we get into feedback, I want to talk about something I'm really excited about that's happening on our forum. Anyone who signs up and comments on the stories there is eligible to receive a bunch of free and exclusive stories to listen to that aren't available anywhere else. I guess that's what exclusive means, right? I kind of mentioned this in last week's episode, but wow, 
the author list has really grown. Escape artists Greg Van Eekout, Amal El Motar, Mer Lafferty, Alistair Stewart, Tina Connolly, Anna Schwinn, Samantha Henderson, M.K. Hobson, and myself, and others have all agreed to donate never-before-published stories exclusively for our forum lights. We'll be recording them and sending them out to all of you who register. All you have to do to get these extra goodies is go to forum.escapeartist.net, sign up, and comment on a story you like, then comment in the iHeart Escape Artist thread. Do that before the end of September and I'll send you a bunch of exclusive stories in October. It's trick-or-treating made easy. Alright, feedback for Podcastle 116, Holly Black's Paper Cut Scissors, read by Matthew Wayne Selznick. It kicked off our Borderlands of Fantasy Month with the story of a girl literally swallowed up by literature and her ex-boyfriend's botched rescue attempt. At least, that's what happened the first time I listened to it. Anarchistador said, As a rule, I'm not a big fan of meta or self-aware fiction, but I found myself drawn into the world of the story pretty quick. I love the idea of all these literary characters rubbing elbows in an eccentric bookworm's basement. Also, is it wrong that I enjoyed the idea of Werther getting a good beating? Gateau said, I kind of wish the author had just stuck to classic literature references when the characters started coming alive. Mostly because I felt slightly embarrassed that I knew more about graphic novel references than some of the classics. But the actual concept of the story was the best part. How many times have you read something and would give anything to dive into that reality? I nearly peed myself when Justin saw his girlfriend in a Hogwarts uniform. I would totally write myself into that series if I could. Schreiber laughed in a crowded cafe when Wolverine growled, Who's John Galt? And Gia liked it so much she listened to it twice, saying... The first time when Justin visited the collection at night and added a little something to Linda's story was great, but that was nothing compared to the second time when Justin got into a fistfight with Siegfried and had to be saved by Randolph Carter. That was epic. I can't wait to hear what happens next time. And Gia did come back to tell us about how much things changed when she listened to it the third time, the fourth, the fifth. Head on over to our forum at forum.escapeartist.net to get in on the discussion and find out about all the adventures that may have ended differently from the stories you heard. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping us afloat, so we can continue to bring great fantasy stories to you week after week. Thank you very much for your support. We'd also like to thank you for letting us share another story with you. Podcastle's made up by associate editor Ann Leckie, sound editor Peter Wood, co-host M.K. Hobson, and your terrible but great editors Anna Schwind and myself, Dave Thompson. That's all for this time, brothers and sisters. We'll be back in a week when a familiar dragon returns to Podcastle for the very first time. Until then, keep on flying those friendly skies, and we'll see you all in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Neil Gaiman said, Sometimes you wake up, sometimes the fall kills you. 
And sometimes when you fall, you fly.